Father, we come before you and we know the days are evil just as they have been ever since the world was created. We know that during the time of Noah, there was violence in the land just as there is today. There are those who forsook your teaching, your directives, your ways just like today. And there are evil men and evil women going from bad to worse, just like there are today. I pray that you would help us, Lord, all of us, to understand how we should act, what we should say, when we should refrain from talking. I pray, Lord, that you would give us this wisdom as we get into Second Timothy. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week... We covered the metaphors of a soldier, a farmer, an athlete, and they were good, and they focused on hard work and loyalty and determination, and somebody, again, has to be focused directly on what they're doing if they're involved in any one of those, otherwise they will be a failure. And in verse 14, as we left off last week, it says, keep reminding them of these things. This is the elect, and he had this little story in there, this little hymn. He said, remind him of the gospel and Jesus Christ versus all of eternity, that he is the Lord of it. And if we are involved in martyrdom, that there will be a reward for us. And during all of that, just like John the Baptist, we may have doubts. And I believe doubt is a part of faith. It causes us to go forward. It causes us to examine what the scripture has to say and what the truths of God are. And we're supposed to do that. And so items that Timothy was to focus on and what he was to avoid uh, focus on or just to avoid altogether, he he tells Timothy here in 2 Timothy, going on from verse 15, what he is to uh, focus on and avoid. So warnings about words. We covered this, genealogies and arguments and Quarrels about the law. It's talk, it, this is talked about in Titus as well, all, the whole of the pastoral epistles. False doctrine and godless chatter. All of those things were to be avoided. Now, defining what those are, for us, it's, it's kind of nebulous. Well, what do you mean by godless chatter? What do you mean by arguments and genealogies? Remember, the Jews were all about genealogies. They wanted to know who was who and what tribe you came from. And this was all set up by God for the purposes of tracing the Messiah. We needed to know that he came down through the tribe of Judah and through King David and through Abraham. And so that's why they kept track of the genealogies. But after Jesus came, there was still this investigation into genealogies and who belonged to what tribe. Now, it's interesting today. uh, The Jews, they have been doing this even up till today, and they want to make sure they know who was in the Levitical line. Because when they rebuild the temple, they will have people from the Levitical line serve in the temple. And one of the names would be Cohen. Cohen is considered to be a Levitical uh, name, uh, last name. And, and there's a couple others that are out there. But they focus on that even today. And we know that the temple is going to be rebuilt. And when the temple is rebuilt, the people of that lineage will, in fact, serve in the temple, according to Ezekiel chapters 38 through 40 there. And he goes on to say, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. And I quoted you, uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. I'm just going to read the whole thing to you. It says, but avoid foolish controversies, 
and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You can be sure that such a man is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. So somebody who's argumentative inside the body, you're just supposed to say, we think you ought to fellowship somewhere else. That is not who we are supposed to be. Now, these arguing about ideas, there's a lot of self-invented theories which are out there. Things that people come up with or they'll start splitting hairs on certain doctrines or what certain words mean and, and those meaning of those certain words, they tend to divide who we are. Now, I think inquisitiveness is good as opposed to uh, diving into something just for the controversy's sake. And I love talking about the different doctrines and where they came from. And we want to make sure that we are always referring back to the scripture to, to make sure that the doctrines we hold to are solid. They're on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. Remember, I told you last week, one of the questions that came up by Thomas Aquinas in the 17th century was how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. That, that is a ridiculous argument or uh, about the centrality of the earth in the universe, that the earth is the center of the universe. And it used to be believed that the sun actually rotated around the earth and the galaxy rotated around the earth and the galaxies that are out there, all of them rotated around the earth because this is God's place right here. <clears throat> and that is still, I showed you the book last week. I held it up to you, the geocentricity of the universe. It's like, and... What is this supposed to mean for us? And we can talk about this all day. You know, one of the biggest controversies which are which is out there, and it is so contentious, is in Genesis, how long is a day? They talk about this, and you have Ken Ham on one side, and you have Hugh Ross on another side. And they just battle against each other. And Ken Han says, if you get rid of the foundation, then the whole Bible's destroyed and it has to be a 24-hour day. And Hugh Ross says, ain't no way even the light that comes from the distant galaxies, that is 13 and a half billion years old. And that's as far as we can see. It's probably bigger than that. And, and they just go at each other. I've come to the conclusion over the years, and I've looked at this several times, and I've gone back and forth. I go, 24-hour day, that's what it is. And some people say, well, it could be for the earth, but not for the universe. And so they're splitting hairs. It's like, does it really matter in the scheme of things? We know that God is the creator and he gave us the sixth and seventh and, you know, all of that. And I'm holding to that, no question, but I'm not going to be able to solve this problem. Even the scientists, they disagree about it. And so why spend a lot of time? It's good to know that. It's good to be inquisitive. And see what the argument is or the gap theory. God did not create the earth a waste place. And all of a sudden we see that no herb of the field had sprouted up because God had not yet watered anything. No rain had fallen on the land. And so what happened if he didn't create the earth a waste place? There should be abundance everywhere around the earth. And we just keep on going on and on and around and around. And what good does it do? Nothing. It just frustrates people and it creates these camps. And now you have a couple of camps. Same thing with baptism. What do you do? Do you sprinkle? Do you pour? Do you dunk? And if we get in arguments about this stuff, and it's like, you think God's going to come back and say, now, why didn't you sprinkle? He's not, he's not going to do that to us. You know, that, that negates the whole purpose of 
baptism, so it's this splitting of hairs. Now, sometimes when people have questions, these questions, they can be, and there's one particular website I like to go to. It's called God Questions. Uh, I think it's gotquestions.org. And they have just about every question you would ever like to ask. It's usually answered there. And people submit questions to the site. And then they try to answer these questions. And questions have been submitted that have been misspelled, where you obviously see there it's a misspelling. Others are just delivered out of ignorance. They have no idea what the Bible has to say. And there are others that are just ridiculous. Now, I'm going to give you some example of, of these. These are actual questions that were sent to askquestions.org. Here's the first one. <clears throat> Does God hate Satan? Why did God throw Satan out of heaven? Now, obviously, that's a misspelling. It's, I, you know that they're talking about Satan, but they spelled it Satan. Or are angles male or female? And, and you look at that and you go, like, okay, it's a misspelling. So there, there's just like people make mistakes on asking questions. And okay, well, you correct them gently and you move them on. Then there's ones from ignorance. Why did Samson kill all those Thessalonians with the jawbone of a donkey? He didn't kill the Thessalonians. Philistines, Thessalonians, it's just ignorance of the Bible and they have a tendency to gently correct. Or here's another one. Why didn't the Israelites make the tabernacle out of iron instead of animal skins? That way it would be more sturdy. And, you know, if you know about the tabernacle, it's supposed to point to Christ. And Christ is a metaphor of iron for Christ. It's not supposed to be used like that. And so it's just somebody who is ignorant of the Bible. And you have a lot of grace for those people. Or here's one. If the ark was large enough to contain two of every animal, how did the Israelites carry it around for 40 years? You see, it's, it, you're just mixing up stuff when you ask those questions. Or this one, where can I find the little drummer boy in the Bible? Uh, he's, he's not there. And then there's the ridiculous. Did Jesus' mother Mary have a cat? Uh, obviously, that comes from a cat lover. They want to know if Mary had a cat. And here's a final one. Now, this is just bizarre. It's wrong on so many levels. Is it wrong to take homeless people bowling and then gamble on which one of them is going to win? This is an actual question that somebody delivered and you're going, what does that have to do with the Bible? What, what's going on with this here? And people are speculating all over the place and that's why we have the Bible. We, we study it, we see what it has to say and we, we go on from there. Now, arguing about words, for instance... This is my body which is given for you. As often as you take this, do this in remembrance of me. Like next week, we're going to receive communion. What is it that is the body of Jesus if you uh, receive communion? Well, there are several different interpretations, at least three. If you have been a Catholic or attended a Catholic mass, you will know that the actual host or the bread they, the priest will have a service or a mass and it is bringing in God's grace and that bread actually becomes the body of Jesus. That's what they believe. 
and they'll keep it on the altar and it'll be up behind the priest and up uh, beyond the table that's up there. That's the altar and it will be, have a little curtain on it and they'll bring it out and they believe that the bread and the body or the bread is the body and the cup of wine is the blood of Christ and it's called the theological term is transubstantiation is what it's called but then the Lutherans when uh, Martin Luther came out he goes no it's not the actual body and blood of Christ that you're receiving the Lutherans would say well it's spiritually the body and blood of Christ it's like when you eat it it has an effect on you spiritually on the inside and then there's what we hold to it's a memorial as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, because that's the actual word in Scripture. So what the body means, it, it even is split amongst denominations, whether it's Catholic, Lutheran, or all Protestant denominations, or most of them. And then, as I said, the day in Genesis, is it an epic of time, or is it simply a 24-hour period? And then being baptized, dunking, pouring, sprinkling... This particular one has caused a division in the body of Christ and actual denominations have arisen from most all of these. And there's other words like that and we can argue over these words but we're forgetting what the meaning of these words actually is from the scripture, what the purpose is. And so if we are discussing and going into... Uh, these words is it benefiting us or is it wasting time <coughs> excuse me or is there more harm that will result from getting into this topic and we have to be careful about that it, some of the questions that come up and i've seen this ruin people the question is what if well what if god didn't do it like that some of these uh, topics would be for instance that our souls are in a bank somewhere and when we are born then God takes that soul and puts it in a body if it is so what if it's not can we figure it out if it's true or not no we can't well what about this what what about the difference between demons and fallen angels there's a whole study about this that the demons were probably in some type of body before and that's why they seek to inhabit other bodies possess other bodies whether it's a non-animate type of uh, idol or if it's a pig or if it's a person but it doesn't seem like fallen angels are doing that and other people say that fallen angels and demons are still the same and and they get involved in this argument we cannot resolve any of this and yet people get involved in arguing about it. it and it makes no sense we don't need to do that and so we want to resist contemplating a spiritual truth that is outside the spiritual teaching or possibility of the word explaining it to us so many things out there god is infinite and his knowledge is infinite and when we get up there we are never going to stop learning just getting that you know you made it through high school and you thought that's all the knowledge i need or you go to college oh that's it i got my degree and so i know everything now we don't know anything about anything and that's how god would have us look at it too we know just enough to get saved to operate in this world to try to make life pleasant for others what our destiny is what our origin is what's moral what's the meaning of life we have all that information but when it comes to the things that are just beyond us it does no good to speculate it does no good to go into the what ifs now you can be inquisitive 
and ask some questions, but drop it if it turns into an argument. We want to make sure we are rightly dividing and not wrongly dividing the word of God. And that's what verse 15 says. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. And so there is a way to incorrectly handle the word of truth. There are denominations out there that would seek to control, just like the government. Do you think the government seeks to control? Uh, They do. Well, there are churches that seek to do that as well, and pastors inside of churches and elders and deacons. I was just reminded of a story I was listening to Pastor Jack Hibbs, and he was uh, explaining how Kay Smith had died uh, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, yeah, it's a tragic thing, but she was really the impetus behind Chuck Smith in getting the hippies. She was the one that would say, we need to get them and bring them home, and she did. And pretty soon the hippies were in the hallways and in the bedrooms and sleeping bags and smelly and, and drug abusers, and Kate said to him, you need to give them the gospel. And she did. And Greg Laurie and Mike McIntosh and all those guys, they, they got saved as a result of that. And, you know, going out and giving God's word, uh, we want to make sure that we are involved like that. We're presenting ourselves and not giving the false doctrine. And in Chuck's church, there was a, I don't know if he was a deacon or he was an elder, and the hippies were coming into the church And on one evening, and I actually remember Chuck sharing this story, how they came in and they didn't have shoes on and their feet were dirty. And he wanted to keep them from coming in the church, this elder, this deacon guy, because they'd make the carpet dirty. And Chuck Smith stood up and said, rip out the carpet. You know, let let them come in. And so there are those who would seek to control. There There would be those who would say, why aren't you wearing a tie? Why aren't you wearing a suit as a man? As a woman, you need to be wearing a dress. After all, you ought not to be found in the attire of a man. And and all of it, just the controversies and the control that is there. And so we want to make sure we know what God's will is. We want to study to show ourselves approved. We want to be a workman, which means we are working at instructing others. And that's what he's telling Timothy. You're working at instructing others. Handle the word correctly so you don't need to be ashamed of what comes out of that. Um, That false doctrine... You must be baptized to be saved. That is not a biblical doctrine, even though there's one verse taken out of context that says, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved. You have to read it in context that's taken out of context or no musical instruments. And the theory of this is, since there are no musical instruments used in the New Testament, you cannot use any musical instruments in church, is what they say. I have a tendency to want to play every single instrument I know when I hear that. The guitar and French horn and baritone and piano. and I just want to do that. It, it kind of, that's my flesh. I want to do the finger in your eyes. That's not what scripture says. But as we'll see later, the servant of the Lord must be kind and gentle and able to instruct and not do that type of thing. But it's simply to control the people is the way that these false doctrines get started. Or purgatory. I was instructing the youth this last Sunday because some of them went to a Catholic funeral. I said, well, I'm going to teach you what the Catholic Church believes. And one of the beliefs is 
purgatory, that God's grace isn't enough, that when you die, you go to a place of purgatory and you have to work off your sins. And it could be a thousand years, 10 years, a thousand years. We don't know how long, but if you are deemed a saint, once you die, that takes you out of purgatory and you go directly to heaven. And then there's a bank of grace in heaven. And when the priest gives you absolution for your sins, he is able to go to that bank and give you the grace of God as well. He's going, Where is that in scripture? It is not there. It's things that we have made up or have you heard this one? Don't judge. You're not supposed to judge. That's not the whole context of Matthew chapter seven. It says, do not judge. So you be judged with the same measure that you judge with a little King James in there. And so it's not saying don't judge. We make judgments about everything. When you get in your car, you're going to make a judgment. Do I pull out here or do I wait? You're going to judge. When somebody's walking down the street, you're going to look at them and say, hmm, I think they're homeless. You're making a judgment. If somebody is a female, you're going to say, I think they're a female. But today they'd say, no, don't do that. And they're changing the language. Even in Congress, they're changing the language now. Nancy Pelosi just said, you can't say father or mother, aunt, uncle, sister, brother, any of that. They're taking that out of the official language in our government. It's just craziness. And where does this come from? It comes from the pit. That's where it comes from. And people are listening to that. And and so when it comes to false practices and false beliefs, even as it uh, uh, pertains to the world, we want to make judgments about that. We make judgments like for right now, we're all making judgments about the COVID and the lockdowns and the vaccines and should we, should we not? And is this right? Is this wrong? And who is it affecting? And should children get it? We're making judgments about all of that stuff. And God wants us to. He doesn't want us to just sit by and be bystanders and, okay, whatever they want us to do. Uh, It's like, I can remember in elementary school watching a film we would go into the auditorium and back behind the auditorium was the stage and they could pull the curtains. We had watched film this, you know, the film that goes on the reels that goes around. We had watched one. Of, yeah, yeah. And it would clatter like that. You'd have to do an adjustment on there. And we watched this one about lemmings. You guys know what lemmings are, right? Over in Ireland, uh, it, the cliffs, they would go by the thousands and they would run over the cliffs and commit suicide. We're not supposed to be like lemmings, just following the crowd. God wants us to stand alone with him and we're never fully alone. We're with him. And if God is with us, who can be against us? And so God wants us to avoid quarreling about useless topics, words, phrases. And when it comes to the word of God, we need to be solid on that. He goes on to reiterate this in another way. In verse 16, he says, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Now, do you guys know what gangrene is? I actually went back and looked it up. I I, I did know that it was a lack of blood to an area of the body. And that area of the body, the cells start to die. And when they start to die, they can actually putrefy. And if they putrefy, the only remedy is to cut off whatever is putrefying that is gangrenous. And Paul is saying this teaching is like cutting off the blood flow to the body of Christ and it's good for nothing and has to be cut off and done away with. If you don't do that in a human body, the whole body dies. 
And so he's encouraging Timothy here, get rid of this false doctrine, this godless chatter, and those who indulge in it, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. There are so many false doctrines. Even the time that I have been in ministry, they have come and they have gone, like the Toronto blessing that started at the Toronto airport vineyard. Uh, That just kind of ran through the United States and vineyards popped up all over the place that had that. And it even came to San Diego here in a couple of churches. And and we talked about that and it's made resurgence a couple of times. And you just want to make sure that Uh, You're not falling into that false doctrine. Other gangrenous teachings, well, these are some, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, they talked about the resurrection as a past event. Well, it's not a past event because we know there's certain things that have to take place that are in the future, like the tribulation. Well, what's the tribulation? Seven-year period where God's wrath is poured out on the earth and also Satan's wrath is here and the Antichrist is here and the abomination of desolation, thousand-year reign of Christ, all of that takes place. But there are those who teach, no, it's already happened. It's already take place. Even though scripture says the time that comes upon the earth during the tribulation, it will not be like anything that has ever happened before. Stars will fall from heaven. The earth is going to wobble like a drunkard. A meteor is going to hit the earth and destroy one-third of the waters and one-third of the grassland and one-third of the air. Nothing like that has happened. But people misinterpret or reinterpret what's there and say, no, this is a localized thing. No, God says it's the whole world that is involved in this. So this is a gangrenous teachings to say that, oh, it's already taken place because what are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to the redemption of ourselves. We're looking forward to God judging wickedness and evil. And when that happens, it is going to be a terrible time. It is going to be hell on earth. And then there's the gangrenous teaching of adding works to grace as grounds for justification. Now, a couple of churches that do this are the Roman Catholic Church and Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, might you say there are some that can be saved in those churches? I think so, the individuals. But when it comes to the the doctrine itself, when you see somebody worshiping Mary, and, and I've actually seen this, where they're bowing down to the statue of Mary and touching the statue and praying to her, and it's idolatry, and the scripture condemns that. But the Catholic would say, well, they're not worshiping the idol. They're really focusing on Mary or one of the saints, and they're interceding to Jesus on our behalf. I explained this last week that in Catholic circles, there is this doctrine of the co-redemptrix, which is Mary, that she is without original sin. She lived a life that was sinless. She is a perpetual virgin. The children that are mentioned in the Gospels, Uh, that were Jesus' siblings, they were the children of Joseph and not Mary and all of that, it's just not scriptural. It is not there and we want to make sure we're holding to scriptural practices and doctrines. Then relying on the reality or uh, denying the reality of the incarnation that Jesus, he never became a man because he was pure and if he was God, he could not become a man because everything here is evil. This is new age teaching, Christian science, that type of thing. Then there's the denying of the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was not God. He was human. Of course, the Jehovah Witnesses hold to that. Then there's the denying the sufficiency of divine grace, that God's grace is enough to get us saved. And people uh, in the past, there are several of the... Uh, 
charismatic movement that would hold to that, like Armenians, uh, several Armenians that would hold to that. Then there's the denying of the true human response to the offer of salvation, that you do nothing in order to get saved. Nothing whatsoever. I've heard it said that there isn't a molecule that moves that God doesn't determine its action. There's not a hair in your head that isn't there by the total purposes of God. They also extend that to say, you can't even get saved unless God causes you to be saved, even though it says, choose this day whom you will serve. Isn't that a choice that we get? God is not willing that any should perish. Well, why do some perish if God is not willing that any should perish? I mean, there's scriptures that mitigate against that. So both the Armenians and the Reformed, it's like, wait a second, you guys, you're putting this human construct, this human theology on there. That's not what the Bible teaches. There are some verses that seem like, well, maybe you can lose your salvation. And there's other verses that teach, well, no, you can't lose your salvation. And then we go back and forth and create different uh, sects of Christianity in order to accommodate this. And we'll hold to this one and those guys are all wrong and we're going to convert them to our way of thinking. It's just a mess. It's just a mess. Just preach Christ and Him crucified. And when it gets to these other things, be aware, be inquisitive, what's there. But after that, just look, I'm not going to be able to solve this one. I just don't know if this is true or not. Did you see that uh, they claim again that they found Noah's Ark? Yeah. Uh, and they've been doing this since the 50s. A guy went out there, I forget the guy's name in the 50s, and he found it out there. And I actually saw a video where the boat used to lay and it, it had kind of rotted at that time and it kind of split from side to side and he took a rake and you could tell where he, where he had pulled down the, on these sides that went up. He'd pulled down the rake and you could see where the beams were, the rotted wood that was there. Still kind of preserved because it's on Mount Ararat. And he, he found things up there and you go, okay, that's it. Well, they did a ground penetrating radar of that area now. And it's, it was in the news yesterday and the day before. And it shows perfectly in that area an outline of a boat. There's no question at all. It's on Mount Ararat. It's the outline of the boat, the ground penetrating radar, the density of the material that's there. It looks like a boat. It's great. But other people say, no, it's just a myth. It's not there. Or what about the Shroud of Turin? Is that the burial cloth of Jesus Christ? Some people say absolutely it is. Some people say absolutely it's not. Well, so what if? What does it matter it doesn't matter to us. And we're not going to go touch it and get some kind of efficacious grace from touching that shroud of Turin. Don't touch it. Is it? Well, what difference does it make? It doesn't make a hill of beans. You know, when the earth is destroyed, that's going to be destroyed too. Yep. Do you realize that? Everything that is here is going to be destroyed. Then there is the doctrine of total annihilation. Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists hold to this. That once you die, you cease to exist. It's like you go to sleep and you don't dream and you never wake up. That's a false doctrine. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. Matthew chapter 25 verse 46 say that both life and death are eternal. They go on forever. Punishment is eternal. That is a false doctrine. That is a gangrenous teaching. Otherwise, if you said, I don't want to go to heaven, I'm just going to cease to exist. You see how it is falsely leading somebody in the wrong direction and will have an effect on their eternity. And God says, if we love them, we're going to tell them the gospel. Or what about dominion theology or theonomy? I don't know if you've heard about this. Uh, Rush Dooney is one guy who uh, used to be a, a 
perpetrator of this and he would write articles and there used to be a bookstore in Grim Avenue in San Diego and they'd put all that stuff up there and they held some weird doctrines. They're believers in the Lord but held some weird doctrines in there. But the idea that you would take the Old Testament law and instill it in our law today. Like for instance, what's the punishment for an adulterer or an adulteress? Stone them. So we'd have public stonings if somebody committed adultery. That's what they would install. And the only problem with that is, have you ever lusted in your heart after somebody that wasn't your spouse? Everyone's going to die. That's the problem with that law. If you started installing the Old Testament law, and the Old Testament law was for the covenant people of God, the Jews in the Old Testament. And we were not supposed to continue that on into the church. In Acts chapter 15, you have the council of the apostles there that tell them what they should do and what they should avoid because Paul made the argument that circumcision is of nothing and he had to have it mitigated or adjudicated by the apostles in Jerusalem. And so this dominion theology where you install into law, codified law in our country, the Old Testament law, that was given to the Jews, and that is a gangrenous teaching. Also, that God is transcendent and unknowable. This was a Gnostic heresy. There's, there's two terms that one is God is eminent, and the other, he is transcendent. Eminent is he is here with us, moving amongst us, Jesus Christ being here. I believe that. He's right here. The Holy Spirit is within us. And then there's the doctrine of transcendent, that he is totally removed from us. He is completely unlike us. He's not similar to us in any way. And both of them are kind of true. Like God is apart from us. There's no part of this sinful fallen universe that he is a part of, but he became one of us as not being sinful. And so both are true, but some people hold to one and some people hold to the other and the two shall never mix. These two are also gangrenous teachings. And universalism. In the church, the early church, Origen, one of the church fathers, and Clement of Alexandria, who is uh, the author of one of the apocryphal books, or two of them, first and second Clement, he believed in universalism, which means everybody's going to get saved. How could a just God who subjects all to sin not reach in being merciful and save them all? Because scripture says he doesn't. He says that wide is the road that leads to destruction and many there be that find it and narrow is the road that leads to salvation and few there be that find it. And he gives exhortations all the time throughout the New Testament that unless we repent, we will also be judged and be sent to hell in the great white throne judgment. And so universalism, this is something that was also or that is also taught by the Unitarians. Now, Unitarians as opposed to trinitarians they believe that there is not the trinity and so they are a cult and they hold to uh, these aberrant uh, terrible doctrines one universalism and one that there is not a trinity and then the other one hell is not forever i already gave you the scriptures on that daniel chapter 12 verse 2 and matthew chapter 25 verse 46 everlasting contempt everlasting punishment it is forever uh, and you know when i, I I really enjoy uh, engaging with the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. They don't come to my house anymore. I think I've been white flagged or whatever they call it. They don't come by. But if I get a chance to talk to them, I I love to sit down and just go through the doctrines. And, And I have to apologize to them right up front. I said, don't misconstrue my passion 
that I'm angry. I'm not. I, I love to talk about this stuff. So I set them up and said, I, I want to talk to you guys more about this. And, and we'll talk about certain doctrines. And you can see how they just glaze over, even though you'll read them to the scriptures. Like in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I think it's verses 4 through 8. It says the earth lasts forever. But if you go to Second Peter chapter 3, it says, no, it's going to be destroyed. And I said, so how do you reconcile that? And it's a great discussion going back and forth. But they hold to these false doctrines. And the whole point is, usually when they leave, I give them the gospel. I say, this is what you need to do to be saved. And don't believe any teaching of any man. And, of course, if you do that, then somebody else will come in and say, oh, he's just, he doesn't understand. He doesn't interpret the scriptures so simply and how you just read it word for word. And they obfuscate what the scripture has to say. And they keep people in deception. Lord willing, we'll be able to rescue some out of that if we study to show ourselves approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, correctly handling the word of truth. We should be able to engage anybody on any subject in theology as it pertains to the Bible. How long will it take us to get this down? Our whole lives. It never stops. And then how long does it take you to forget? Like in a week or a day, then you have to go back and review the whole time. That That's what God calls us to. And so... Paul also is in a habit of establishing those who hinder God's work. That's why I named to you some of these denominations and the people who are out there. Paul named in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Figlius and Hermogenes. In 2 Timothy 2.17, Hymenaeus and Philetus. In 2 Timothy 3.8, Janus and Jambres. And also in 2 Timothy 4 verse 14, Alexander the metalworker. And so if there are people who are opposing the gospel, we should feel free to say... Look, they're opposing the gospel and name them by name or talk about the denomination or the movement which is out there saying this is a false doctrine. Don't be afraid to stand up and say, no, I don't think that's correct, but doing it with gentleness and respect. Now, going on in verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And so the foundation that he's talking about here, God's solid foundation, it stands firm. We know what it is and who it is. It's Jesus Christ himself. This is pointed out in 1 Corinthians 3.11. It says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. We also know that the apostles and the prophets are part of that foundation. So once the foundation is laid, that's it. But as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 goes on, it says, now we are the ones who build on that. So if you're on the foundation, that's good. You're saved. You have eternal life. But then you build on it a structure. Now, you guys remember the three little pigs? You do, right? Okay, I, I was just checking. You know, you, you had the one uh, uh, straw and you uh, he built his house out of straw and the other one who built his house out of bricks. And yeah, I forget what the third one built it out of. But anyhow, the, the wolf comes along and he huffs and he puffs and he blows it down. And that's not a good foundation. Like if you lived in the Caribbean or in Florida and you decided to build your house out of sticks, it's not going to do very well when it comes to a hurricane. You know, we've done hurricane relief. And I told you before in Bay St. Louis, we went down there and the entire city of Bay St. Louis was taken out except for one house, one house that was built by an architect that sunk into the ground these tubes of concrete 
and they went into the ground like 15 feet and then he raised his house five feet above the ground and his house still remained. He just had some damage on the first floor because the flood waters got up to 52 feet high. In his area, it wasn't quite that high, but that was the damage. So if you build on a solid foundation, you're doing good. Your house will remain even though there can be damage on the inside. And so wood, hand, stubble, that is our work. That's what we're building with if we're building according to the flesh. Wood, hand, and stubble. <clears throat> In an um, earthquake, wood is good. Brick and block, not so much. But when it comes to a hurricane, block is good. Wood, maybe not so much because it can just tear things apart. But what if you built with gold? What if you built a whole house out of gold? It's not moving. I don't care what it is. It's staying still. Metal is flexible. You know, if you have an earthquake, it is also, it can withstand fire. It can withstand wind. It can withstand all of that. And silver, <clears throat> same thing. These things are metal. Gold, silver, and precious stones. And you can put inside the, the gold, you can put the precious stones. And so these are our works. <clears throat> the works that we do, if we do them with the proper motive, for God, for others, without seeking any aggrandizement towards ourselves, any accolades that we can direct towards ourselves, if we just do that unselfishly, that's gold, silver, and precious stones. But if we do it selfishly for ulterior motives, that's wood, hay, and stubble. But we're still on the foundation. So even though your reward, and that's how our reward is determined, is based on our works here when we get to heaven, you might have a palatial estate that has been built for you as your reward. Now, I'm talking metaphorically. When you get there, I don't think you're going to see the White House. I, that's not going to be your place. And you're not going to see a little cabin in the woods, a little shanty that's out there because those are your works. You're not going to see that. I believe it's going to be in the form of honor and responsibility that God will give you as a reward. And, and so we want to make sure that we're planning ahead for that. And we are, are laying our foundation on Jesus Christ and who it is that we have believed he is the one. And he, it also goes on to say, he knows those who are his. It, it is sealed with this inscription. Now we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. I believe the spiritual realm knows who belongs to Jesus Christ and who doesn't. Uh, you're one of them so to speak, would be what the demons would say or the fallen angels would say. And we have been sealed. Now, if you know what a seal is, if, uh, and I think they still do this on occasion, like if you send out wedding invitations, you have wax, and you put wax on the, the invitation, and you blot it with a signet ring or a, a, a dauber that has an insignia on it, and that is how you seal a letter. Back then, the wax was made either of animal fat or beeswax. Uh, today, paraffin comes from a petroleum product. They get that from gasoline. We get so many things from the oil that's in the ground. And so, so you drop that wax on there, and you seal it with a signet ring or a, a little pad that goes down there. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so when the enemy looks at us, oh, it has a seal of God. It's almost like he gets saved, and you're a scroll. God rolls up the scroll, puts the seal on you, and that's it and he puts it in the book of life and you you are there all of us who have that are sealed with the holy spirit so uh, we have the foundation and the lord knows who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the lord must turn away from wickedness now this simply means turn away from all that that is morally wrong 
Are there things today in our society that are morally wrong? Yes. I've had discussions with people and they said, well, you know, if that works for you, that's okay. That's wonderful. But for me, that doesn't work. That, you know, I, I believe we have freedom to do everything. Remember the Epicureans and the Stoics? The Stoics, they believed you couldn't do anything. You had to leave a life that was just, you're starving yourself. You're doing without anything that is really necessary for pleasure or comfort. And your long face, you know, kind of like a horse. Why the long face? You're, you're always walking around like that. That's who you are. You don't smile very much. Then there are the Epicureans. Epicureans are like, Woo-hoo! we can do anything that we want to do. It's okay because this world is evil and it's passing away and God's going to save us all. It's going to be wonderful. And so there were those two philosophies. Today, I think we're under the Epicurean mode. And anybody who comes along that talks about the Epicurean lifestyle and condemns it, oh, you bigot oh you're hateful how dare you do this you you want to control people no it's just the opposite those who give themselves over to pleasure are controlled by that pleasure and the chains wrap around them and yet if you are able to exercise some self-discipline unlike the stoics who just got rid of everything that's called asceticism you know that's why people would go into the the monasteries and they would do without and even martin luther would whip his own back with a, a flagellum back there just to get his body to submit we can't get this body to submit have you ever tried perfecting your body been to the gym <laughs> look at the muscles and you go don't you all it looks good and you take a picture of yourself of course you hold the camera your phone in front of your face so people can't see your face but they can see your body you know and you got your body you're trying to perfect it just give it a few years this is going to change completely how many people 80 years old do you see at the gym i I might have seen one in my lifetime how many 20 year olds do you see that they're they're just like I'm going to use a nice word, but I was going to say like maggots. They're everywhere in the gym, just going in, looking in the mirrors. Of course, you've got to walk by the mirror and you've got to look in the mirror and you're trying to perfect that. What about sin? Have you ever tried to perfect not committing a sin? It seems like the more you try to perfect not committing the sin, what do you do? Yes, sin. That's Paul, chapter 7, Romans, the end. The things I don't want to do are the very things that I do. I'm going to determine not to do that. And God goes, Go ahead. You can try. It's not going to work. You have a fallen nature on the inside. Now, you're supposed to resist and work at resisting, but you're not going to be successful. That's the grace of God. The grace of God comes in and goes, I know. You can't get it right. It's okay. I'm going to fix it. You're going to get a new body. But yet we walk around, I'm such a sinner. Yes, that's true, but God's going to fix it. I'm so condemned. You were, but now you're not. You see how God works? And and it's so great. It's such a good news. It's the gospel. God says, you can't perfect the body. I'm going to destroy it. You're going to get a new one. And everything's going to be good. That is God's grace to us. And that's what causes us to rejoice. And so the Lord says, we must turn away from wickedness, but be assured you're not going to perfect it. It's not going to be done in such a way where you never sin again. We can resist and God can give us strength to do that. But God said, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you a new body. Then in verse 20, in a large house, there are many articles of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. For instance, they would make cups out of gold and silver, and you would use those for nice place sitting. When I grew up, 
You guys know what Corel dishware is? It doesn't break. No, we got it to break. <laughs> but you, you would put that on the table, and that was the everyday wear that you'd put out there. Occasionally, we'd even use paper plates, ignoble, you know. But my mom, she had this silver set that she got for her wedding. And then she had this wonderful china, all these china plates that were there. And I can remember when we were young, she'd pull those out on the special occasions. And it'd just be really nice. Those were for the noble meals. But for the rest of the time, it was Corel. It was plastic. It was, you know, remember the aluminum cups that were different colors, the metal cups that you would get and you'd you'd drink on those. And, And so some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble. You are either a tin cup or a cup out of clay. Did you guys ever make things out of clay to drink out of? I I did. Get on that wheel. You know, you have those things. But then you had the good stuff. Maybe when you got married, you you got um, a couple of glasses or one glass for communion that was just beautiful. Noble purpose. God says, I want you to be fit for noble purposes rather than the common like the trash bin. Well, that's a, a... little container that's for ignoble purposes, right? Or remember ashtrays? Ignoble purposes. All those ashtrays that were filled with all the cigarettes if you grew up in that particular era. And that was commonplace. You know, cars used to have ashtrays in the doors. Remember that? You'd have one in the back seat and you'd have one in the front seat. And the really fancy cars had the cigarette lighters in the back seats too. And you could smoke back there and everybody would just be fuming away as you drive along. And, and, and so is it ignoble or noble? Is that what you're going for? And to get to the noble purposes, you want to get rid of the wickedness, the immorality, the filth. You want to work on both thought and deed, not that you will perfect it. But God says you can have some power over that because God gives us the power. It's not power that's innate in ourselves. He goes on to say, if a man cleanses himself, verse 21, from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made wholly useful for the master and prepared to do any good work. So if you're in the word, you're studying it, you're trying to live a righteous life, doing the best you can as God gives you the strength, then God will use you. If you don't prepare, if you don't try to live a life of purity, then God will use you less. Verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, evil desires of youth. For young men, I know exactly what that is. It's young women. Uh, for young women, I, I think it's having raised daughters and granddaughters. I think for young women, it's focus on the self. I, I think that they do that a lot. And they look towards the young men to give them their worth. And young men are willing to do that. I think you are the most beautiful thing that ever graced the face of the earth. And they go, oh, you think so? Oh, yes, I think so. And you see how it works? And God says, whether it's for the young women to get rid of the self-focus or the young men to get rid of the lust and everything that is involved with that, and also anger. The young men, when they start to find out that they can fight and they can take somebody else out, not all young men, but that's what they get involved in. Why do you think there's boxing 
You know, why do you think there's the MMA and they're trying to get the women in that? And, and it's just like there's so many sins of youth that we can get involved in. And also foolishness, which is there, that can be on both sides of the male and female spectrum. God tells us to avoid those things. Verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they produce quarrels. Now, one thing to do to avoid these quarrels is to avoid the people that make the foolish and stupid arguments. I told you before about the guy who used to come to the church that thought he was a prophet, that thought we should take the whole church at Y2K up to Cuyamaca, get a big cabin up there. Everybody goes in there because the world's going to be destroyed, get machine gun permits and hunker down. I told you about that guy, right? Well, I tried to deal with him less and less and it worked uh, scripture says in proverbs chapter 13 verse 20 he who walks with the wise grows wise but the companion of fools suffers harm so if you hang out with fools you're going to pay for it but if you hang out with the wise you'll be like that you'll be like the wise or avoid an angry man scripture says in 22 verse 24 proverbs do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. You'll become like him. And avoid people that lack good character. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And even the world gets this. Warren Buffett was asked a question by a 14-year-old named Justin Fong. The question was, what advice would Buffett, would he give to a young person like Fong how to be successful? This is what he said. It's better to hang out with people better than you. Pick out associates whose behavior is better than yours and you'll drift in that direction. And so if you want to avoid foolish and stupid arguments and getting caught up in all that rigmarole that causes damage and gangrenous teaching, just avoid those people. Correct them once, maybe twice, but then have nothing to do with them. And then verse 24 and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, he must gently instruct in the hopes that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So they're supposed to be kind. Anybody who's involved in ministry or trying to give instruction, they're supposed to be kind and not resentful. Not resentful to those who would oppose you. Bitterness, you know, if that bitterness comes in, God says, do not let a root of bitterness come in there where you're just thinking about somebody and how they did you wrong and what you'd like to do to get back at them. Uh, there is a uh, quote about the bitterness. And well, I thought I wrote it down here. Where's the quote? Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's what resentment is like, that bitterness that's there. It's, don't even let yourself go there. And remember, uh, dealing with people that you may be in opposition with doctrinally, a gentle answer turns away wrath and harsh words stir up anger. Keep that in mind. And another way of saying it, a soft answer, oh, excuse me, by a soft answer, wrath is turned away, but a bitter word is a cause of angry feelings. So just don't engage in the argument so walking away here we have warnings quarreling about words we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved we're to avoid godless chatter false doctrine 
And we're to endeavor to order our lives in such a way where we can be useful to God and, and instill in our lives a sense of purity, be selfless in ministry, kind, not resentful, and try to lead others to change their minds gently. And Lord willing, we'll do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul and what he instructed Timothy in his last letter before he died. I pray that you would help us to take it to heart, that we might be able to stand up for truth, oppose false doctrine, avoid the godless chatter and all of those things, the ridiculousness which is out there. And help us just to be solid for you. Help us to strive to live lives of purity and not strive through the flesh, but just remaining close to you. For we know if we walk in the spirit, we'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And again, Lord willing, we'll do so with your help. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.